On this episode of the show, we'll be talking about a couple of very different one-man army type movies, starting with The Born Identity from 2002 and John Wick from 2014. everyone welcome to brandon at random reviews i am your host brandon griffiths thank you for stopping by i do appreciate it today on the show like i said as always we've got a couple of movies to talk about that i'm really excited to get into but first i wanted to talk a little bit about video games specifically shooter video games now they've talked about actually coming out with a video game for John Wick, and obviously they're going to make it sound like it's going to be really well made and excellent, but that is yet to be seen. We don't really know what to expect with the whole thing, but it just, it's not 100% clear what level of quality we're going to get because, as you probably know, most video games that are based on movies kind of fall flat, and it's a little unfortunate. Because there are a lot of movies that could be made into video games that could be splendid, but they're just, they're not doing that. They're not, they're basically just rushing to get them done and throwing them out there and hoping anybody will buy them that like the movie. But in reality, it's like, you can still rent video games from like Gamefly and stuff like that. And you're going to find out if something's going to suck, or at least you're going to look up reviews on it and determine, I mean, like, it's like that Avengers game. They made this whole game and I looked into it and I was just like, God, I don't know if I like the concept of what they're going to do with this game. It doesn't really seem like it'd be fun. And there are a lot of Marvel games from the past that I've really liked that weren't inspired by movies directly. But that's the way it is with video games these days. You have to look into reviews and all stuff like that. Mostly I usually look into like gameplay videos on YouTube and just see, hey, how does this game actually look to play what's it like and then I just I decide if I'm gonna play it from there so first on my list of my favorite shooter games and these are across all different platforms mostly more recent console type games but they're kind of all over the place so the first one I think of is GoldenEye 007 from N64 and that one really is it's a solid game They've tried to remake it and redo it several times, and they've kind of failed every time. I really enjoy that one. I think the most popular part of that game was the multiplayer, and it was a like a local multiplayer. And I don't know that that game was the first to ever do local multiplayer or any multiplayer whatsoever in that style, in this set map where you're just hunting down your friends and shooting them. I don't know that that had been done before, but if it had been done before, GoldenEye can certainly be credited with popularizing it, and it it was a sweet game. I mean, everybody fucking loved GoldenEye. I don't know anybody that has never played that game even, so... And obviously, you know, there are other James Bond games on that note, but they're very hit and miss. They're not all good. They all have their flaws and things like that, but they're not terrible, usually. The other one I think of is... Not so much a shooter, but it is kind of. It's uh, Metal Gear Solid from 
PlayStation 1, and I really loved Metal Gear Solid. It was one of the first video games that I ever actually beat all the way through. And that one is just, it's a very well-made game, and it honestly, it's got such great voice acting in it, and so many great storylines, and it's just so fucking awesome, and honestly, I wish they would have fucking made that into a movie, but they've never done it, and I don't think they've ever tried. It might have been talked about, but it's never actually happened. So next up, we have Call of Duty, and for me, I know a lot of people are hardcore original Call of Duty fans, and they really love those like World War II-based games, but I'm more of a modern warfare kind of guy. What I love about Call of Duty is that you don't have to keep buying the new ones. If you find one that you like, you can just kind of latch onto it and play that all the time, and it ends up being pretty fucking fun, especially if you can play against bots and their multiplayer. You can play the story mode, which that's the only drawback to Call of Duty is I feel like every fucking story mode is so brief, it's just ridiculous. It's like you start playing it and you get through a few levels and it's like you're already fucking done and you're like, what is what the fuck is this? Next up, we have Uncharted, which is a series of games for Sony PlayStation. I think it started on PlayStation 3 and these are just really cool. They're kind of like that game Tomb Raider with Lara Croft, but this is Nathan Drake and you know, I actually covered the movie that they made based on this video game series, and I I really, I love the games. I think they're really great, and they're really well made, and the voice acting and stories are fucking stupendous. And then I would definitely have to mention that I love Max Payne, the original game from PlayStation 2. It is phenomenal. It is so well made. It's really cool. It's got all of this what they call bullet time, which is basically like the Matrix where you're like going into slow motion and you're doing all of the shooting and stuff and trying to kill all multiple people. And it's just fucking great. I, I really like Max Payne and it's it's a very well told story and it's done in the style of like a graphic novel, which makes it even cooler and more appealing to me than anything. And then the, the last one I'll mention is the game Gun from... I think it came out on PlayStation 2 and Xbox originally, and I really liked it. It was like an Old West-style shooter game, and it was a really cool story, and the voice acting was really solid. So yeah, I just really wanted to talk about some video games a little bit, just briefly, and kind of warm up like that. So for the first movie, we have The Born Identity, released on June 14th, 2002, Directed by Doug Lyman, and he did Swingers, which is just a quotable classic. I fucking love it. It's got Jon Favreau and Vince Vaughn, and they go to Vegas, and they have a great time, and Jon Favreau's going through a breakup and all this stuff, and it's it's a very well-made movie, and it's it's like an indie movie, and it's a very early movie for both of the actors that are in it. There's a movie called Go that I have not seen in, like, 15 to 20 years, however long ago that it was when it came out. I probably saw it a couple of years after it came out, and I thought it was a solid movie. It was just, I, I haven't really gone back and watched it ever since, and I might need to do that. I don't know. I'm not really positive. And he also did Edge of Tomorrow slash Live, Die, Repeat. That one's highly enjoyable. I really like it. 
even in spite of the fact that Tom Cruise is in the movie, and you guys know how I feel about Tom Cruise, I'm just not a huge fan of his, but I do really love the story, and it's a really cool action movie. They really hit home on a lot of things. For the writers, we have Tony Gilroy and William Blake Heron, and this is based on the novel The Bourne Identity by Robert Ludlum. For the producers, we have Doug Lyman, Patrick Crowley, and Richard N. Goldstein. For the score, we have composer John Powell, and he did Face Off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, and that is still one of the best bad movies out there. It's terrible, but I fucking love it. I, I just enjoy I enjoy watching that from time to time just because it's so ridiculous. And he also did Gigli with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, which was a critical and commercial flop. And it was just, I watched the movie just because I had to see what it was all about. And it was legitimately terrible. I can't deny it. It's so fucking bad. There are so many cringeworthy scenes in it that I'm just like, what in the fuck was that? I mean, there's there's a moment where basically Ben Affleck is going to eat Jennifer Lopez's character out and she lays back on the bed and says, it's turkey time, gobble, gobble. And I'm like, what? Like, Is that for real? Is that what you fucking left in the movie? Okay. And then he also did Solo, a Star Wars story, which is the fifth worst Star Wars movie behind episodes one through three and episode eight, because The Last Jedi is fucking bad. I'm sorry. Solo is, it's not a good movie, really. I mean, it's it's decent. It's watchable, I'll say, but there's just too much of that prequel bullshit in it that it's just like, hey, why don't we show the origin of how Han Solo started calling Chewbacca Chewie. And it's like, no, just fucking have him start calling him Chewie. Or make it a little more subtle, but don't make it like, hey, I'll call you Chewie. Fuck off. Get the hell out of here. For the cast, we have Matt Damon, who plays Jason Bourne, and he was in Goodwill Hunting as Will Hunting. And he was definitely solid in that movie. He's got a lot of great lines and a lot of great moments and I I just I really like that one it it really stands out as being a great not like big budget movie you know I mean that's that's what I think of is it's not like an indie movie per se I don't think but it's definitely solid all around he was also in Saving Private Ryan with Tom Hanks and a very long list of other established and -and up-and-coming actors and the effects in that movie are amazing My only issue with that movie has been that I don't really know that I think that it's a believable story where it's like this woman has all of these sons. I think it's like she has four sons and three of them die. And so they go and they want to rescue her last son so he doesn't die. And it's like, get the fuck out of here. Like, I mean, would they really do this? Do I think that they would actually give a shit? No, not even... Even back then, where maybe they would have had more of a sentimental side in the the military, I don't know that that's even fair to assume that was a thing. But basically, I just, I don't know that I believe that they would have sent anybody on a mission to save one guy just so his mother didn't lose all of her sons at war. They all went to war. They knew what was possible. I mean, it's not like they signed a contract that said that if, three of four of them die that the army has to, they're 
obligated to go and save this one guy. You know, I, I don't believe that. He was in The Martian, which I need to rewatch. It's one about a guy that goes to Mars and he basically has to figure out how to survive on the planet by himself. And it's fucking nuts. I mean, I it's it's a really good one. I, I really liked it. And it's very well shot and it's cool to look at. I really like that. And then last but not least, he was in The Departed. And that one was fucking solid all around. So many great performances. Such a great story. So many cool elements to it. I just, I absolutely adore it. Next up, we have Chris Cooper, who plays Alexander Conklin, and he was in American Beauty as an angry dad, and that's what I most remember. I think that's probably one of the first things I saw him in, other than maybe October Sky, which is the next one I'll talk about, but I, I really liked American Beauty, but I don't know that I still like it, given what kind of person Kevin Spacey turned out to be. I'll cross that bridge someday and I'll I'll watch it again. So October Sky is the one about the kids that want to get into space-related stuff. It's all about like Sputnik and the next big leap into space and all this stuff. And and I believe he Chris Cooper also plays an angry dad in that one. And he was also in Sea Biscuit, which I just I watched that one because I heard it was so good. And I watched it, and it was just like, this is okay. This is nothing to write home about at all. And then the last one I wanted to mention was Capote, which stars Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I haven't seen this one at all. It's just, I don't know if I'd like it or not. It's about Truman Capote. I haven't really heard that many good things about it. I know that Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in it is supposed to be good, But beyond that, like, I don't know that the story is that spectacular. Next up, we have Clive Owen, who plays The Professor. And he was in Sin City, and he was awesome in that fucking movie, previously covered on this podcast. Absolutely adore that movie. It's one of those ones that it's just, it's always fun to throw on and just see all of the cool shit they did with the visuals in it. He was in Inside Man, which was one with, I believe, Denzel Washington, and that one's one of those really cool, well-made movies that it keeps you guessing the entire time what's happening, and it's just, it's very interesting to sit through and, and just try and figure out what the fuck's going on. He was in Children of Men. I believe I've talked about this one before. It's the one where all the women of Earth are barren and... Clive Owen has to basically protect this last pregnant woman and everybody wants to get at her and all this stuff, you know, and it's fucking wild. The last one I'll talk about with him is called Valyrian and the City of a Thousand Planets. And that movie was fucking trash. It was fucking bad. I watched it because they covered it on an episode of How Did This Get Made? And it was not a good film. I didn't really enjoy much about it at all. Next up, we have Brian Cox, who plays Ward Abbott, and he is in Desperate Measures, which was previously covered on this podcast, starring Andy Garcia and Michael Keaton. And I gotta say, Brian Cox in that movie, he wasn't really much, he didn't really do a whole ton in it. It was just kind of like, he was there, but it was like, he had a pretty small role, if I remember right. And obviously, he's not much of a leading man. So next up, he was in Iron Will, and I really love Iron Will. It's about the kid who 
enters the Iditarod, the dog sled race in Alaska. And that one, it's it's a really good movie. I really enjoy it a lot. It's very intense and it's cool to watch. It's just very fun. He was in Super Troopers as O'Hagan. And so he was like basically the police chief of the Super Troopers. And he's dealing with all of these dipshit police officers that are doing stupid stuff all the time. And last but not least, he was in X2, X-Men United, and that one is fucking phenomenal. It's a great superhero movie. It's a terrific follow-up to the original X-Men from 2000, and he plays this, uh, this character who has a son that is a mutant, and he basically wants to, like, exploit the mutants, and basically he wants to, like, also banish them from existence basically or like regulate them and things like that and it's like he's genuinely a terrible human being in those movies and or in that movie in particular and it's just i but i he really does a good job with the part i really like him so franca potente plays marie and she was just in run lola run that was the only one of note that i really recognized from her and that one was pretty solid i I think I watched that one in one of my film classes in college, and it was pretty decent. I was kind of surprised that it was the movie that my professor had chosen to have us watch, but it was a pretty good one. So next up, we have Julia Stiles, who I have noted here is hot, and she plays Nicolette Nikki Parsons. She was in 10 Things I Hate About You, which is a teen movie, chick flick type movie. I, it was all right. I didn't love it, but it wasn't bad either. I I enjoyed it a little bit here and there. And she was in Save the Last Dance, which I've never seen and probably never will because I don't really much go in for those teen dance movies other than Dirty Dancing and Footloose, which were previously covered on this podcast. So for casting notes, among those considered for the role of Jason Bourne were... Brad Pitt, Russell Crowe, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Tom Cruise, and Sylvester Stallone. Now, any one of those people in this movie would have been just a huge change. It would have been just a monumental change in the overall feeling of the movie, I feel like. And it would have been way different if they would have been in it. So for the plot synopsis, a man discovered floating in the Mediterranean Sea has no memory of his life or who he is and must use a variety of skills that he seems to have in order to piece together what happened to him. Alright guys, let's just dive right into this fucking plot. So the funny thing about this opening Universal Studios logo thing, apparently against the advice of his sound mixers, Doug Lyman chose to take out the classic Universal music over the opening logo, and instead includes ambient sounds from the film. The mixers told Lyman the music over the logo was generally a cue to the audience to shut up, but Lyman went against their input. As he notes, they were right. Evidently, the audience Lyman saw the film with for the first time talked over the beginning of the film. Yeah, I mean, that's what'll fucking happen, dude. Just fucking listen to people every once in a while. So I honestly don't really ever need to be out at sea in pretty much any ship, especially not any size fishing boat at all. I don't get seasick or anything. I just don't really think that being way out there in open water is a great idea, despite being able to swim fairly well. I mean, I wouldn't be an Olympic swimmer or anything, but I'd be a decent, I'd be able to keep my head above water at least. 
So these fishermen are all playing cards, and it seems like it'd be impossible for the sea not to constantly scatter everything everywhere on the table. I don't really know how they're accomplishing this. So one of the fishermen looks out and sees a man floating in the sea, and this score that's coming through is pretty nice. It's subtle, but it's, you know, it's pretty well done. The men get the body out of the water, who I'm just going to tell you right now is Jason Bourne, because that'll make it a lot easier, so I don't have to refer to him as the man or whatever. It's just, it is Jason Bourne. You'll find that out in due time, but for right now, I'm just going to call him that. So they realize that he's alive and go to great lengths to save his life using the shitty tools that they have at their disposal. The doctor removes some bullets out of Bourne's back and is examining him, and they keep showing shots of Bourne's hands and face, and you just know he's going to wake up because him being dead already would be just terrible fucking writing. I, honestly, that'd just be fucking stupid. So I love the way that they do it in movies, though. Kind of foreshadowing and telling you indirectly what's going to happen, all with a little bit of simple camera work and stuff. But you don't really know when he's going to wake up, and it's just clear it'll be soon. So the doctor pulls what initially looks to be a tracking device out of Bourne and is perplexed by it, of course. What I don't understand is that if Bourne is alive, how is he legitimately not flinching when the doctor is pulling shit out of his back with tweezers, like bullets out of his back with tweezers? I mean, training or not, ouchie. And how did he not bleed out? That's the other thing. The unanswered question is, is it something to do with the salt water? I don't really know. So the doctor looks at the device under a magnifying glass in another room and realizes it's actually a laser message projector with what I guess are coordinates or something on it, basically just numbers. When he comes back to the other room, Bourne's body is not on the table anymore. Bourne makes his presence known and starts attacking the doctor and asking him what he's doing to him. The doc is obviously freaking the fuck out, pleading that he was trying to help him, but Bourne is not super trusting in this particular moment. So Bourne asks a bunch of questions like where he is and stuff, and he's clearly nervous and uneasy, and that'd be just straight up fucking terrifying, to be honest. I would not like being in this situation. Just all of a sudden you wake up, you're on this unfamiliar boat with unfamiliar people, and you just don't know what the fuck to do. The doctor asks why the laser projector device was in Bourne's head, and then he asks Bourne who he is, but Bourne doesn't really know, and he obviously doesn't know how he got there or why he was in the sea of all places. In Langley, at CIA headquarters, a man comes and reports to a superior named Conklin, played by Chris Cooper, that they've confirmed that the mission was failed, And one can only assume that this was Jason Bourne's mission, and they're assuming that he's probably dead. So the doc and the other fishermen help Bourne rehabilitate and work on the boat. He desperately just wants to know who the fuck he is, and I'd be freaking the fuck out if I didn't know anything at all about myself. Like, what am I allergic to? Do I get motion sickness in the car? Do I remember who Taylor Swift is, or have I lost all my memories of Tay-Tay? Actually, I'd love to make a list before getting my memory wiped and then go out and experience those things again for the first time, starting with Taylor Swift's music. I'd fucking love that. So can you imagine just waking up one morning and not knowing where anything is or what your job is or what people you know? Bourne is trying to find where he was originally with some maps, and it just seems like it'd be pretty tough to figure out given how little he knows 
So he realizes that he has all of these skills and he can just use them instinctively, but doesn't know how he got them or that he has them until he needs them. He's getting very frustrated, naturally, and he wants some answers, but the doctor obviously doesn't have them. And the doctor tells him that his memory will come back, and Bourne is worried that it really won't, which seems like a good fear to believe will come true. But maybe it wouldn't be so bad. You could start a new, establish a life in some new location, get a wife and kids, and then some random day get put in the slammer for tax evasion from your old life. Yeah, that'd be awesome, right? So they come ashore, and the doctor gives him some money to tide him over for a bit and get him back on his feet. And it occurs to me that this guy that I've been calling the doctor is actually just credited as Giancarlo and might just have some medical expertise, but is not necessarily a real doctor. But he'll always be a doctor to me, I guess. So Bourne gets on a train to go to Switzerland, and I'm reminded of a quote from a movie starring Orson Welles called The Third Man, where his character Harry Lyme says, Don't be so gloomy. After all, it's not that awful. Like the fella says, in Italy for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. So long, Holly. I fucking love that line. I just, I had to reference it because I don't know that I'll ever cover that movie, but I just wanted to talk about that fucking line so bad. So Bourne is sitting on a train looking out the window and he seems wicked distraught, probably wondering how his socks are doing, hoping maybe they got a wild caught spot or something. So when he arrives at his destination, which it turns out is Zurich, Switzerland, he seems truly lost, and he gets caught sleeping on a park bench, and these two police officers come up and want to see his ID. It's at this point that they just taser Jason Bourne, and he cries out, Am I being detained? I have rights. Just kidding. They go to arrest him, though, and they decide that he's being way too unruly when he says that he just needs sleep and he doesn't have any ID. So this cop gets kind of testy with his nightstick and suddenly Bourne's fighting instincts kick in and he fucking lays these two cops the fuck out in like two seconds. He seemingly has no idea what happened or how he even did that. A little trivia on that, Matt Damon trained in the Filipino martial art Kali for the movie. Kali involves using the aggressor's energy against them and conserving your own energy. At the CIA, they talk about a guy named Wambosi who wants to be put in power or something like that, and he apparently thinks the CIA tried to assassinate him. Brian Cox's character, Ward Abbott, talks with Chris Cooper's character, Alexander Conklin, and they seem to be talking about Bourne, saying someone seemingly tried to take him out. Abbott makes it clear that Conklin screwed something up, and that's all we really get of it. Bourne goes to a bank in Zurich and writes down a number for the front desk. I believe this is the same number that was on the projector thingamajig that was pulled out of him on the boat. Why are these Swiss banks such big deals, though? Like, are they really that fucking secure? All of these movies and stuff talk about them, like, all the fucking time, and I don't get it. So I googled it, and apparently the main benefits of Swiss bank accounts include the low levels of financial risk and high levels of privacy they offer. The Swiss economy is one of the most stable in the world and has not been involved in any conflicts in hundreds of years. So that kind of makes sense, I guess. He goes through the ringer of Swiss bank security to get to his safety deposit box, 
Inside the box, there's a garden variety of personal items, including a passport with his name and photo on it. Some fun factoids about that. Amongst the items in Jason's safe deposit box are an American Express Platinum Charge Card and a rather unusual Air France Club 2000 Frequent Flyer Card. The latter is an invitation-only card handed out at the discretion of Air France senior management to customers who control multi-million dollar Euro travel budgets and cannot be earned by flying per se. That's fucking weird, like why I put that in here, but okay. So the stuff also suggests that he lives in Paris, potentially. Naturally, he does some more digging and realizes he has several IDs from different countries. He throws all of this stuff into a bag and just goes to take off, and he finds out from the guy at the counter on his way out that it's been about three weeks since he last came to this particular bank, which would track with whatever got him thrown in the sea and caused him to lose his memory and stuff. In a lot of ways, when I was planning this episode, I thought immediately of doing a one-man army type episode, but I'm starting to think that this movie might have also paired well with the movie Memento, where the guy has short-term memory loss. Bourne calls his place in Paris and hears his own voice on the machine, and that'd be super fucking weird, and I feel like everything would just be so fucking bizarre with this. I Just not knowing anything would just be so crazy. So he's walking through town and some cops seem to be after him, but they're being subtle for some reason, even though he clearly knows they're chasing him. He goes to the U.S. Embassy and there's a woman with a mess of papers trying to get her green card sorted out. Bourne just kind of walks away and a man of authority yells out to him to put his hands up. When they go to apprehend him, the darndest thing happens. Bourne immediately fucking takes every threat down like it's nothing, like those cops by the park bench. This sequence is fucking sweet. He's running for his life, and all of these cops and military men are trying to catch him. They're gearing up with big automatic weapons and shit. He steals the dude's radio that he knocks out. It just seems like everything's going into lockdown mode, and he's listening to the orders on the radio. So Bourne is insanely calm during all of this, though, which I guess would count as a skill you wouldn't really need a memory for, I guess. Plus, he's just fucking walking instead of running like a boss. So he makes his way outside to a fire escape, and it's going to be a fun trip to the ground level after he drops his bag all the fucking way down there. He's climbing outside of the building, and my god, I'd be freaking the fuck out between the police pursuit and not falling. And I'm not generally afraid of heights, it's just the fact that he doesn't really have stable footing is not a good situation. The officers come out to the fire escape and can't see Bourne, so they quickly dismiss it and move on. Conklin at the CIA gets word that Bourne is alive and in Zurich, and they're obviously going to go after him. Bourne sees the girl from the embassy who's named Marie and is played by Franca Potente, and she's getting into her car and he pays her 10 grand to take him to Paris. That's honestly going to be cheaper than an Uber these days, am I right, guys? (laughs) Plus... Have you bought food from fucking Uber Eats or Grubhub lately? I could pay 35 fucking dollars for a single value meal at Mickey D's, no joke. But seriously, folks, Conklin is tasking everyone with finding Bourne. He's sending out assassins and different stuff. We see a phone call to Clive Owen's character, who is simply credited as the professor, but we don't actually hear the professor talk just yet. And they're just showing how these different agents are all over looking for Bourne across different major European cities. I would also think that them not realizing that Bourne has lost his memory might benefit Bourne potentially, but 
Also not much now that I think about it because he wouldn't recognize them as a threat when he saw them and that would be problematic for him. So they would probably assume that he wouldn't bother going to certain places because they're going to think that he's got the memories that he needs. So Marie is talking to Bourne a lot in the car as they're driving and she grows bothered by the fact that she has been nervously talking for like an hour straight and Bourne hasn't really said jack shit. And I'm realizing now that my awkwardness and inability to spark conversations could easily just be blamed on my potentially being, you know, a rogue CIA assassin who lost his memory. That that would be fine. So he doesn't even know what kind of music he likes, let alone the things that you'd want to talk about for conversation. I, I, it's got to be tough for him. So he breaks down and tells Marie that he has amnesia and she is skeptical at first, of course. Conklin is trying to figure out what the deal with Bourne is, and one of his men finds footage of Bourne with Marie in Zurich. They try to figure out who Marie is and what stake she might have in this or where she might be going, and I feel like you'd have to be super good to figure all of this shit out. Like, maybe if it was your job, you could probably make it happen. I do love Julia Stiles, who plays CIA person Nikki Parsons. I don't really see her in enough stuff. She's also at the CIA trying to track down Bourne, and so she's not out in the field trying to track down Bourne. She is legitimately just at CIA headquarters with Conklin. She's more of a desk jockey from what I can tell. She's really good looking, if you were wondering what my thoughts were on that. But she seems like she's always moody, I guess. I feel like she would just kind of be mean to me if I talked to her. Anyway... Bourne tries to understand how he knows all of these things instinctively. Just a little theory here. It almost seems as if he went through intense training before he lost his memory, and that's really all there is to it. So they arrive in Paris. Marie kind of acts like she wants some Jason Bourne D before they almost part ways. She comes with him to go up to his place, and this woman greets him at the front door, and he obviously doesn't remember her even a little bit, but he plays it like he does, and... She lets them into his place. So Marie uses the bathroom and Bourne calls a hotel trying to find himself, which sounds like existentialism as opposed to investigation, but it's really not. He is told one of his aliases is apparently dead. This John Michael Caine guy that was in his IDs earlier. I should probably mention that Bourne is also fluent in several languages and just randomly finds himself talking to others he doesn't expect to be able to talk to. Marie complains that there's no hot water, and I really don't know what significance that have. Like, did they shut off the hot water to his apartment? Is that what I'm to gather? Suddenly, Bourne is on fucking high alert and is carrying a steak knife sneaking in the halls of what is presumably his own place. And it's not entirely clear what that was all about initially. And then Bourne and Marie keep exchanging flirty glances, and Bourne goes to look out a window suspiciously, and this fucking dude on a rope just swoops in with a machine gun. Bourne starts fighting with what appears to be two CIA assassins. It's so fucking slick the way he fights, and all of his movements are so fucking fast, it's amazing. He stabs one guy in the hand with a pen and flips him over the fucking desk, but he's not dead because that's not realistic to assume that that would have killed him. The guy Bourne holds up and attempts to interrogate, straight up hurls himself out of a window, which results in his death. Clearly, he didn't really want to answer any of Bourne's questions. Marie figures out that the men have her and Jason's pictures, and she's obviously pretty alarmed by that. Like, they're the pictures from outside the embassy, 
So it's like they've clearly got pretty good surveillance. Marie is basically catatonic for a few minutes after all that's happened. I guess it's just a reaction to all of that shit that she's not used to being around. Conklin finds out from Nikki what happened to the men he sent to get Bourne. Bourne goes inside somewhere and comes back out to find Marie not in the car, despite him telling her to stay in the damn car. Bourne urges her to just go to the police and not further endanger herself. Bourne is visibly frustrated with the whole situation, and he's trying to do right by her. He urges her to leave and cut ties with him, but she's not super into that. Like, could you imagine that, though? Someone you just met a short while ago being willing to endanger their own life to be with you while you run from the authorities? It's fucking wild, man. So they flee in their little baby Mini Cooper-looking car. There is definitely a great fucking chase scene coming up. The music during the chase is a little poppy for my taste. It's that Ready, Steady, Go song. It's not a bad song, though, but it just feels kind of cheesy in this setting. So they go down a flight of steps in the car, and let's just say I'm not super sold on that whole thing, you know? It seems like that car would have been fucking toast after that. The maneuvers that Bourne is pulling in this little car are pretty fucking impressive, though. He's shaking pursuers left and right, dodging traffic, all of that shit. And I was thinking that maybe if I learned how to drive a car like that, I could potentially land somebody like Franca Potente, and that'd be pretty nice. This guy, Wombosi, comes and looks at a body in the morgue that is supposed to be born, but he knows it's not him. And Nikki tells Conklin that, and obviously they were trying to pull the wool over Wombosi's eyes and let him think that Bourne was dead, but it's pretty clear that he was not. So Bourne dyes Marie's hair darker, I think, and then he just lops it all off, but... I'm still not buying that it would give her any cover when seen by suspecting agents or officers at all. Bourne and Marie get to smooching in this intimate haircutting scene, and I know all of those times I've given a woman some shitty dye job and then I butcher her hair. They just can't fucking resist me after that, you know? I guess we're to assume that Bourne and Marie had sex. Bourne wipes their room clean before Marie even wakes up and says it's best to not leave a trail, and I feel like that'd be a fucking nightmare to clean everything I touched in a hotel room. Like, I don't touch that much stuff, but it's just like worrying that it might be traced back to me is terrifying. So Wombosi is talking with some of his men and the professor snipes him through a window and kills him. Bourne and Marie are going to part ways and are exchanging contact info. And it's too early for Instagram, but I bet her Instagram handle would be something like at EuroAngelWildChild or something awesome like that. So Conklin talks with Abbott and he thinks that Bourne will come back after completing his mission, clearly not realizing that Bourne wouldn't even know where to go if he was going to do that. Bourne is calling a bunch of numbers trying to get information, and I think they're in Paris, and they just had an amazing shot of the river looking at these bridges, and I just love me some bridges, especially like suspension bridges. Yeah, those are some good bridges. So Bourne goes into this place posing as this John Michael Kane alias that he had in his IDs earlier. Bourne is frustrated by not being able to confirm his actual identity, and he doesn't know if he's Kane or Bourne or what. We've all been there. Running from the police, an insane amount of skills and fighting and whatnot with no memory of where you got them happens to me all the time. So Bourne goes to the morgue to see what body they have there, and he finds out that the guy Wombosi went to the same morgue to see what was made up to be Bourne's body. So Bourne manages to figure out that three weeks ago, 
Jason Bourne actually boarded Wambosi's boat and Wambosi put two bullets in his back. And basically that's why Jason Bourne was out floating in the water like he was. Bourne determines that he must be an assassin and that's why he was found in the sea. And this is all very troubling information and there's awkward silence between Bourne and Marie on the subsequent cab ride. They bail out of the cab when they hear police sirens, and Bourne ascertains that the cops are going to search their old hotel. Bourne finds a wanted poster in a car with his and Marie's faces on it, and that's probably not encouraging. He has to encourage Marie not to bail on him, at least not yet, because it's not safe for her to do that right now, essentially. And she seems to want nothing more than to get away from him at this point. It's like just because you've now confirmed he's a dangerous assassin and is wanted by essentially all authorities, you're going to leave him in his time of need? What the fuck? Abbott is pissed at Conklin because of how the Bourne stuff is being handled. Conklin said that Bourne would have come back by now, but of course all the wanted posters have discouraged him and kept him on the run. Plus, it probably doesn't help that Conklin sent all of those men to kill him. That's going to put you in a sour mood. The CIA sets up a group of locations to investigate to try and find their man. Bourne and Marie break into a house of a guy that she knows, and they think that they could hide there because she's thinking the guy might not be around. But they realize that the house is currently being lived in, presumably based on it being decorated for Christmas when they break in. The guy shows up as they're leaving, and he says that he'll let them stay for some period of time. And the CIA figures out where they might be, which I think is actually where they are. Like, they they get it right, and they're able to track them down. And I honestly would not do this to somebody I know, especially considering the guy has little kids. You just don't put someone in danger like this when you're on the run and are very aware of how wanted you are, despite not remembering anything. So this guy's kids are actually adorable, though. It's You see them for a brief second, and it's like, aw, they're, they're kind of cute. Bourne suddenly tells the guy to get in the basement with his kids for safety, and it's unclear what Bourne has figured out that suddenly has him on high fucking alert, and I think he spotted the professor out of the window. Bourne finds a shotgun, and he shoots a tank, and it explodes, and the professor is set up and ready to kill him, and the smoke from the explosion provides cover for Bourne as he walks away to the woods. Bourne makes it a point to draw the professor away from the house, and this is pretty fucking intense as the two of them are basically hunting each other and trying to figure out where the other one is. Bourne finds the professor and shoots him twice before questioning him. The professor is apparently an assassin of the same type as Bourne, and men of their profession apparently work alone in most cases. They talk for a bit, but the professor ultimately dies in the field where they're talking, but it's good that they got a chance to catch up. Bourne tries to get Marie to cut her ties with him for her safety, and he tells her not to go to friends and not to go anywhere familiar because of the inherent risk in that. Bourne is looking through some stuff and finds a flip phone, and he calls Conklin at the CIA to tell him the professor is dead. Conklin urges Bourne to come into the CIA, but Bourne knows that they'll just kill him at this point. Bourne leads them to believe that he killed Marie like a fucking liar, Abbott grills Conklin about whether or not he can actually do what he needs to do. Basically, Abbott's perception of Conklin is that he's a piece of shit and has only mucked this operation right the fuck up, starting with the attempt to kill Wambosi. Anywho, Bourne arranges to meet with Conklin on a bridge out in the open alone, and at the bridge there are clearly men there talking into Secret Service-style radios. 
Bourne is wise to this and says the meeting is off. My question is, aren't those communicator mics supposed to be discreet and not require you to grasp at your collar while talking and not give yourself away immediately? So Conklin is trying to set up a different plan, and he calls Nikki to have her delete a bunch of files. Maybe it's all record of Bourne's existence? I don't know. So maybe Julia Stiles is actually not that good of an actress, because I don't think she's particularly great in this, honestly. But maybe I look at a lot of celebrities through rose-colored glasses when they're dreamy. Wherever Conklin is, he's with Nikki, and their security systems and stuff are going fucking haywire. It's clear that Bourne is there, and... They don't really know exactly where he is, but they just know he's got to be around. Naturally, Bourne gets the jump on Conklin. Conklin is angry like no one other than Chris Cooper can pretend to be, and that is his specialty, honestly. It's necessary to understand that they still don't know and subsequently don't believe that Bourne has lost his memory. Conklin explains to Bourne what he did the night before he was shot and how he did all of this investigating and waiting on this Wombosi guy. Apparently, he freaked out when he went to kill his target, and he couldn't go through with it, and that's when the guy shot him and threw him overboard. Conklin won't let him just walk away, and Bourne aggressively tells him that he wants out and roughs him up a bit. So he goes to leave and has to fight a couple of guys. He starts shooting with dual-wielding pistols, but he holds one upside down, and that would be hard as shit to aim, I would think. So Bourne jumps over a railing several floors up while taking down some other guy, and the landing looks pretty fucking rough when they hit the ground. I can't tell if it was bad CGI or bad practical effects, but it looked wonky as all get out. Somehow just, I don't know, it was just unnatural looking. So now Conklin is limping away, and Bourne is also walking somewhere. Suddenly there's an assassin who gets out of his car and shoots Conklin dead, and the CIA gets word that the deed is done. But it's not clear if they're still going after Bourne now, but they close up shop for the night and Abbott walks away since he was clearly more worried about Conklin sucking it up than Bourne being missing. So Abbott talks at a large hearing about shutting down this program, presumably the one that Bourne was in. We see Marie and her hair has mostly grown back and she's running this little shop and Bourne comes and surprises her and she's visibly excited to see him. And that's the end of the movie. So, praise for this movie. The action is fucking excellent. All top-notch sequences. The chase scene is fucking intense. It's really well done and really well executed. The performances are all solid across the board, especially with Damon and Potente. The story is very compelling, and it keeps you on your toes. It's really well told, I would say. For criticism, I guess I would say the scene where he falls several floors and the landing looks weird was not great, but other than that, I mean, I wish they would have honestly just not shown a direct landing on the ground and just cut to it after the fact, you know? Just like maybe you hear it and then like they go out of frame and you hear them land and then they show them on the ground and that would be it. All right, so here's some trivia. Matt Damon had never taken on such a physical role and insisted on performing many of the stunts himself. He underwent three months of extensive training in stunt work, the use of weapons, boxing, and martial arts. Matt Damon was surprised when he was offered the role because in the book, Bourne is a much older man, but Lyman told me he didn't want to do James Bond. He saw it as more of a European Nikita from 1990. 
At Doug Lyman's instruction, screenwriter Tony Gilroy did not read the Born Identity novel. Instead, he worked solely from an outline prepared by Lyman. Matt Damon went through hundreds of hours of gun training so he'd look comfortable holding a weapon. During production, Universal constantly sent memos to the director, Doug Lyman, after viewing dailies. One such memo urged Lyman to consider using a montage accompanied by suitable wrap-up music to introduce the final act, like Tony Scott shoots. Lyman sent the studio a message back, letting them know that if that's the ending that they wanted, maybe they should hire Tony Scott to do it. In the book, The Born Identity by Robert Ludlum, the main bad guy is a real-life criminal genius, Ilic Ramirez Sanchez of Venezuela, better known as Carlos the Jackal. Carlos committed at least 11 murders in the 1970s and early 1980s, primarily in France, and was still at large when the novel came out. The real Carlos was captured in Sudan in 1994 and extradited to France, where he was sentenced to life in prison. Doug Lyman wanted Matt Damon to walk like a boxer. Damon explained that there was a kind of directness in it and an efficiency about the way they moved. The production used the same stunt driving team that worked on the famous Paris car chase scene in Ronin from 1998. Brian Cox, who played Ward Abbott, and Chris Cooper, who played Alexander Conklin, have characters that are never referred to by name until the end credits. Doug Lyman notes how Matt Damon got into shape to play the titular character. Lyman calls it the no pizza, no beer, nothing fun to eat diet. Evidently, Matt Damon ate white meat chicken and boxed and trained every day for four months. Lyman mentions that he intended to get into shape with Damon as well as actress Franca Potente, but only lasted through one workout. All right, so info and ratings. We have a runtime of 119 minutes, a budget of $60 million. Opening weekend, $27.1 million. Worldwide gross, $214 million. IMDb rating, 7.9. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 84%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 93%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. I absolutely adore this one. It's so fucking great. I can't get enough of it. It's really good to revisit it because I haven't seen it in quite some time and I wasn't sure if it would hold up. Alright, so next up we have John Wick, released on October 24th, 2014, directed by Chad Strahelski. He was known for the John Wick movies mostly, and for his work as a stuntman, particularly that he filled in on the movie The Crow after Brandon Lee's accidental death, and he also worked on the Matrix movies with Keanu Reeves. For the writer, we have Derek Kolstad. For the producers, we have Basil Iwanek, David Leitch, Eva Longoria, who I have noted here is hot, and Michael Witherill. For the score, we have composers Tyler Bates and Joel J. Richard. For the cast, we have Keanu Reeves, who plays John Wick, and he was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, which I haven't seen in a very long time, and I don't know if I would dare say that that one was like a recommendable movie, but it was decent. It was silly, you know, it was just over the top and stupid. He was in Point Break with Patrick Swayze, and that one's a solid one. I mean, it's a cool one to put on. There's a lot of good action in it, and just really, I don't know, the story's pretty decent, honestly. He was also in Speed with Sandra Bullock and Dennis Hopper, and he really kind of made a name for himself as an action star with that movie, I think. 
And then he was also in the Matrix movies, and obviously they vary in degrees of quality, but they're all pretty decent. I haven't seen the fourth one, but the first three are all pretty solid. Michael Nyquist plays Vigo Tarasov. He was a Swedish actor who has since passed away, but he was in a bunch of stuff that I don't know other than Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Alfie Allen plays Yosef Tarasov, and he played Theon Greyjoy slash Reek in Game of Thrones, and that's all I'll ever know him as. Willem Dafoe plays Marcus, and he was in Spider-Man from 2002 as the Green Goblin, and I believe this at least one subsequent movie he was in, and he was definitely in Spider-Man No Way Home. And he was also in The Boondock Saints, which was previously covered on my blog. I fucking love that movie. It's very solid. I really enjoy it. Bridget Moynihan plays Helen Wick, and she was in Coyote Ugly, and that's one of those movies that you'd think, like, guys would just want to watch it for the women that are in it, but it's legitimately a chick flick. Like, it's not at all a fucking guy movie at all. Ian McShane plays Winston Scott, and he was in Deadwood, which I've never seen a single episode of, and I've been told I need to watch it, but I just can't do TV shows very frequently. And he was in Hot Rod as Andy Samberg's stepdad, and I just loved their dynamic, the way that they go back and forth with each other and they, like, fight each other. It's fucking great. And he also had a very brief role in Game of Thrones, which obviously was a show that went to shit by the very end, but... I, I I liked it while it was running for the most part. For casting notes, in the original script, the character of John Wick was written with a man in his mid-60s to play the role, given the title character's fabled reputation. Ergo, the filmmakers had initially imagined an older actor. However, head of Thunder Road Pictures, Basil Awanek, decided against this, stating instead, we decided to look for someone who is not literally older, but who has a seasoned history in the film world. For the plot synopsis, we have a retired hitman whose wife recently passed away is out for revenge when a group of miscreants steals his car and kills his dog. The tagline for this movie is revenge is all he has left, and that's a solid fucking tagline for this movie. So let's just dive right into the fucking plot here, guys. I just want to say that I really enjoy the way this movie sets itself up, where we start off deep into the movie, and there's just a small glimpse of what's to come. John Wick slowly collides with a concrete slab in an SUV, and he gets out and watches videos of his wife on his phone, and just passes out, and it cuts back to an earlier time. John is now waking up, going through his morning routine, getting coffee and shit like that, like a normal person would do, and this is the real beginning of the movie. He's definitely mournful looking, and we see him sitting with his wife at the hospital in a flashback, kissing her on her forehead as she's about to die. And then there's a great sequence of several individual shots of different memories he has with her, and they're just so in love. He goes to the funeral, and he runs into a man named Marcus, played by Willem Dafoe. John says that he keeps asking himself, why her? Why did she have to go? Marcus tries to comfort him a bit, and it's about as comforting as I imagine Willem Dafoe could possibly be. John wants to know what Marcus really wants and why he's there, and Marcus says he's just checking up on an old friend. Like, yeah, I would totally be buying that fucking story. A woman comes to John's house at night and delivers a baby doggo in a little kennel. His wife knew that she was dying and sent him the puppy so that he'd have someone to love in her absence. 
Naturally, John bawls his eyes out because that's a very fucking sweet thing to do, and John's in touch with his emotions. So all of this stuff, like it's so much to take in, but it's so well delivered early on in this film, and you just don't feel overloaded or anything. So this puppy is mad cute, yo. It's a little beagle with those sweet little floppy fucking ears and shit. And the pup wakes John in the morning by licking his face. Little tidbit about that, bacon grease was placed on Keanu Reeves's face in order to attract the dog to jump on him when he wakes up in bed. More trivia, the dog that John Wick owns in the movie was played by a beagle pup named Andy, and the dog was eight weeks old when the movie was made. The dog shits in the yard, but John doesn't pick it up right away. Dog owners, are you the type to pick right up after your dog immediately, or do you wait until later after several loaves have been pinched? Or are you the type that never picks it up? Are you a complete and utter fucking monster? It's not clear what John does with his days in a post-hitman life. Like, does he have a paper route? Is he an instructor at a yoga studio? I have no fucking idea. He goes to get gas and these Russian guys pull up and one of them is played by Alfie Allen who played Dion Greyjoy slash Reek in Game of Thrones. He comes up to John and compliments his car and it's a 69 Mustang which is cool-ish but generally I would prefer to see a much cooler ride given all of the excitement about it. Anyway, Alfie Allen's character is named Yosef and he wants to buy John's car but John says that it's not for sale. Yosef then says that he loves dogs and pets John's dog and says, everything has a price, bitch, in Russian, to which John replies, not this bitch, in Russian as well. Yosef takes this whole interaction as disrespect and John seems a little concerned by it, but not overly worried. John goes out to an old runway and does some sweet fucking stunts in his car. Then he's back in bed at night with the pup. And that's the end of this short film. It's really pretty enjoyable. That part with the Russian kid was a really close call. Just kidding. A bark awakens John in the night, and when he goes to let the dog out, he gets knocked over the head with a blunt object. The group of men start beating him up, and it's clearly the Russian guys from the gas station. The dog is squealing as the men smash up the place, and one of them kills the little pupper. The men take the car and leave John, who is in bad shape, but definitely not dead. He mourns the loss of the dog and buries it pretty quickly. John calmly but angrily cleans up the house, which seems like the way I would describe how my mom cleans, but this is different somehow. Yosef comes to a chop shop to get a new VIN and papers for John's car, and a man there named Aurelio, played by John Leguizamo, immediately seems to recognize the car and wants to know where they got it. Aurelio seemingly called John about seeing the car. We see Aurelio's interaction with Yosef, and Aurelio is angrily asking him where he got the car, and Yosef is the son of some hotshot named Vigo. Yosef doesn't really think that it should be a problem where he got it. In the present, Aurelio is explaining the interaction with Yosef to John and who Yosef is, but Aurelio told the men to get the fuck out and antagonizes Yosef and punches him out. The men leave and threaten to go tell Vigo. Aurelio wants to know what John intends to do, and John borrows a car from him, but John's not a big talker, so we only can assume what his plan is. Can I just say that the sequence with that whole thing where it was Aurelio interacting with Yosef and Aurelio telling the story to John was so well executed. It was fucking phenomenal. Aurelio gets a call from an angry Vigo who wants to know why he got violent with his son. 
Aurelio puts it simply that Yosef stole John Wick's car and killed his dog. Suddenly, Vigo's anger turns to pure terror as he just says, oh, and hangs up. Vigo talks briefly with the Mayhem guy from the Allstate commercials and asks if he's seen his son. Vigo then asserts his dominance with Yosef initially and punches him right out just like Aurelio did. Yosef still sees nothing wrong with what he did or why it was a bad idea. Vigo explains that it's not what he did, but who he did it to that he cares about. He explains who John was. Evidently, John was a hitman who worked for Vigo. And this conversation is also nicely interspersed with John unearthing something in his basement with a sledgehammer. Vigo says that John Wick was called the Boogeyman, but clarifies that it was more like he was the guy that you would send to kill the fucking Boogeyman. Which is a cheesy but fucking awesome line, let's be honest. John apparently asked to leave Vigo's organization when he fell for his now late wife. Apparently, a deal was made where John could leave if he completed a seemingly impossible task and he completed it. With Vigo being a stand-up guy, he honored his end of the bargain, of course. Vigo just can't fucking believe what his son did, and to make matters worse, his son thinks that he's just gonna kill John Wick now. This sequence is so fucking tense and the concern is so well conveyed, and you just know Vigo is thinking like, holy shit, what the fuck am I gonna do? How am I gonna stop John Wick? The whole sequence with Vigo talking to Yosef and watching John get into this thing in his basement is so well done too. It's it's fucking great. It really builds the legendary status of John Wick and how everyone who knows anything about him views him. Vigo assures Yosef that John will find him and kill him. John finally finds what he was hammering away to get to, which is a bunch of guns and shit like some gold coins, I guess. Vigo calls John and has the most poorly executed peace offering conversation with him, where John says not a single word, not even when he picks up the phone. Vigo doesn't even apologize for what his son did, and then it'd have to mean something if he did. Then Vigo sends a team of assassins to converge on John's house, but John is ready this time, brother. You better fucking believe it. We get this incredible sequence where John quickly and methodically kills all of these men in his house, without a second's hesitation. My god, he's fucking grabbing one guy and quick shooting another and then shooting the guy he's been grabbing and he's throwing some guys around. He's doing all sorts of shit. And it all ends with him fighting a guy with a knife and he basically just turns the guy's hand around and uses his hand as a fucking hammer to stab the guy to death. Then the doorbell rings and it's the cops responding to a noise complaint and the officer clearly knows John's deal and realizes what has clearly happened there, and just leaves and makes it be known that he's going to be cool about it. John calls and makes dinner reservations, but this is a ruse, and it's actually for men to come and dispose of the bodies. Everybody just fucking knows John Wick, that's all there is to it. So they really do great work with the bodies, very professional stuff. I mean, 12 bodies in total, that's pretty impressive. I hope that John gave them a nice Yelp review, because... That's the lifeblood of businesses these days. So Vigo puts out a $2 million hit on John Wick. Marcus comes to Vigo, and Vigo's gonna have him kill John Wick. By the way, Yosef is a legitimately awful name, and I don't like it at all, and they keep saying it because he's such a major character, but I fucking hate it. Do people with old cars usually leave the original stereo if possible? That'd be kind of a deal breaker. If I had to revert back from Apple CarPlay, I wouldn't fucking like it. So John goes to a hotel that I believe is called the Continental, and he sees this super hot girl named Perkins, who he knows. 
Presumably she's an assassin as well, since that's what this place caters to. He gets a room, everyone keeps acting like they're excited to see him return, but he's not fully on board with all of that yet. John goes to a nightclub and sees a man named Winston, played by Ian McShane. John is obviously looking for Yosef. Winston cautions him about getting back in the game, but John knows that he needs to kill that fucker. I've never had a martini like the one Winston's drinking, but I can promise you that I'm not drinking anything that's anywhere near olives. Thank you very much. I don't need any olives, and he's got like fucking three olives. Fuck off. I'm not doing it. There's a scene in what I like to assume is a different nightclub. It's very dark, of course, and the lighting reminds me of that scene from The Dark Knight where Batman goes to the club to find Maroney and is beating the shit out of people to get to him. Yosef is still convinced the boogeyman John Wick is no big deal. John puts a gun to a man named Francis's head, and he knows him, and he comments on his weight loss, and Francis says he lost 60 pounds, and John just tells Francis to take the night off. In an interview with Rudy's Movie Reviews, Kevin Nash stated that he was told the reason his character, Francis the Bouncer, was allowed to live Nash said that when Wick mentions that he had lost some weight and Francis stated that he'd lost 60 pounds, Wick was asking in code how many hostels were in the building. Francis's reply was 60. Because he provided the information to Wick, he was allowed to live. John kills two guys in the bathroom inside the club and goes stalking around and we see security checking around for John and the security guards are all painstakingly and carefully being killed by John. John approaches Yosef in this hot tub, and he doesn't really want to kill him just yet for some reason. All of the other security guards are converging, and John is going after Yosef like he's the Terminator chasing fucking Sarah Connor or some shit. The choreography of this gun sequence is fucking phenomenal. Fun fact, Keanu Reeves learned and memorized the nightclub fight sequence the day that the scene was filmed. Another fact... According to the director's commentary, when they shot the top-level nightclub fight sequence, Keanu Reeves was said to have the flu and was running a 104-degree fever. It actually looks like what I would assume to be natural movements on John's part and on the part of his victims. He's killed so fucking many people by this point, and sometimes, you know, he does it in more creative ways than others. I especially enjoy the hand-to-hand combat type stuff. This dude straight up stabs John with a broken wine bottle like, my God, that's fucking ruthless. John takes a man named Victor's phone and Yosef calls it. He tells him that Victor's dead and that everything has a price, bitch, like he did earlier in the movie. The camera work is also quite well done. John goes back to the hotel to patch himself up and have a glass of bourbon. A back alley doctor stitches him up and gives him some meds so he can play through the pain. Marcus is setting up on another building outside across from John's room. Marcus narrowly misses John, and then suddenly Perkins, the hot girl from earlier, is there trying to kill him. I should probably mention that this hotel has strict rules against assassin work being performed on the property, but Perkins says that Vigo offered her $4 million to break the rules. So her and John really go at it, all the while Marcus is still shooting at him. Honestly, if I were in John's position, I'd just ask her if we could just do it, and then she could just kill me right afterwards so I could go out on top. John gets the upper hand on Perkins, and she tells him about this money that's at this church, which is a front of Vigo's. John doesn't kill Perkins. He sees a man named Harry, and of course they know each other. John pays Harry to take care of Perkins in a catch-and-release deal, as he calls it. 
John goes to the church and shoots a fuck ton more people. He forces a dude posing as a man of God to let him into the vault and he sets the money and everything else in there on fire. Meanwhile, Perkins gets loose from her cuffs while in Harry's custody and she kills him. John is at what looks to be a parking lot now, shooting at Vigo and the Mayhem guy and a bunch of others. They manage to get John down, so they tie him up and bring him to a hideout. Vigo talks with him, but it's important to recognize that all Vigo does is talk John Wick the fuck up. Like, just basically talks about what a badass he is. Then he bitches about how important the stuff in the vault was. They rough John up some, and... Vigo explains to John that the life he seems to be coming back to has followed him. He also complains about how it was just a car and it was just a dog and it's not that big of a deal. But John explains that the dog was his wife's final gift to him and it was all he had left of her and it gave him a chance to finally grieve. John gets very angry and offers Vigo the chance to live if he just gives him Yosef. But They pull a plastic bag over John's head and it looks like it could be the end, but suddenly a sniper shot is fired and takes down the two men suffocating John. It's our old pal Marcus. We knew he'd come through. John gets free and fucks the remaining dudes up. And this fighting is fucking vicious and it seems like John's gonna get fucking beat, honestly. Like, he's fucking losing pretty bad here. But of course, he ultimately wins in badass fashion, but Vigo manages to get away. So he causes Vigo to crash by using his sweet gun that reminds me of the one from The Dark Knight where Batman fires all of these self-adhering charges to the windows of a building to blow before gliding in to apprehend his man. So John has Vigo dead to rights and Vigo agrees to pull the hit on John and give him Yosef's location. We see the safe house where Yosef is and there are several men on guard that John has to take out. It's amusing, Yosef's friend is actually playing a video game, like a shooter video game, and Yosef mistakes the gunshots that are happening in real life as ones that are coming from the video game. So John finally reaches Yosef by these shipping crates and shoots him once in the head, and John just turns and walks away and leaves it at that. So John checks out of the hotel, and he goes and sees Marcus under a bridge, It's pretty clear Vigo hasn't let go of this situation. Perkins watches John and Marcus talk and they part ways after Marcus suggests that John is kind of back in the game. As Marcus is coming home, two men come up and follow him inside. When they come in, Vigo is there and they're about to kill Marcus because he didn't kill John Wick when he had the chance and he also fucked them over when they were going to kill John themselves. Vigo calls John while they're killing Marcus, and they're basically just torturing Marcus first. Marcus gets free and kills a couple of guys, but ultimately Perkins kills him, and Vigo double taps to confirm the kill. That Mayhem guy, I swear to God, he really fucking killed his career for me with those fucking stupid-ass commercials. I just, I can't see him as anything else. John comes to Marcus's place and finds his body, Is it weird that Perkins is kind of hotter with a gash in her head? Is that weird? Yeah, that's, that's probably weird. Okay. So Winston comes with some men and kills Perkins for violating the hotel's rules. And I gotta say, I like Keanu's look in this all black suit. It looks really fucking great on him. He pulls it off well. John gets a call from Winston, kindly informing him that Vigo is intending to flee on a helicopter. And naturally, John goes to find him, and we get a pretty fucking solid chase scene. There's honestly not a lot about this movie that is done bad. 
John shoots a guy through the roof of his car, and there's just excitement all over the fucking place. There are gunshots coming from everywhere, and I don't know what this place is supposed to be. Maybe it's a shipping yard or something. It honestly doesn't matter at all. Mayhem guy shoots at John and then misses, and John kinda kills him. Vigo's SUV T-bones John's car, and it's not looking great for our hero. Then we get the big showdown with John and Vigo, and they straight up fist fight each other in the rain, and it's pretty fucking solid, despite being slower paced than most of the other things we've seen in this movie. It seems like John just forced Vigo to stab John, and I'm not clear what that was all about. I don't know what the logic was there. So then Vigo is just sitting there dying in the fucking rain, and John just walks away. We come back to the scene from the very beginning where John crashed the SUV into the concrete slab and he started watching videos of his wife, of course. He gets up and goes into a dog kennel of some sort and patches himself up a little bit. He takes one of the dogs, which is illegal, guys. He didn't adopt this dog through the proper channels or anything. It's the only law that has been broken in this entire movie that I've seen. Anyway, he takes the dog home and that's the end. He's, he's got a new pup to hang out with. It looked like a pit bull, I think. So that's the end of the movie. Roll credits. Praise for this movie, first and foremost, would be the fight choreography is spectacularly done. The story is simple and straightforward. The watchability is fucking through the roof of this. I could watch this movie anytime. The visuals and structures of many of the sequences were top-notch. Criticism, I feel like maybe the fight between John and Vigo could have been more satisfying but it does make sense after all John's been through that he'd be like worn out, that maybe he wouldn't have the energy to have as high paced of a fight or something. I don't know. So for trivia, according to Keanu Reeves, he did 90% of his own stunts in the film. Director Chad Strahelski was Keanu Reeves's stunt double in the Matrix movies. While shooting a scene with a stuntman, Michael Nykvist cut his head so badly that his ear was resting on his right shoulder. This resulted in 80 stitches. Some of the last scenes had to be redone to hide Nyquist's scar. Keanu Reeves' preparation for the role included weapons and martial arts training, eight hours per day for four months. The tattoo shown on John Wick's back during the shower scene is the Latin phrase Fortis Fortuna Adiovat, which literally translates to Fortune Favors the Strong. This is used as the motto of several military units across the world. According to a cast interview, both producer Basil Iwanek and Keanu Reeves referenced the number 84 as being the number of total kills by John Wick. According to a director's interview, Chad Strahelski and David Leitch reused quite a few of the stuntmen several times throughout the film. In order to make them look like different people, they would change their hair, so scenes of the guards and henchmen with long hair and beards were shot first, and the scenes with bald men were most likely shot last. The building facade used for the Continental Sanctuary is the same one used in the stock exchange scene in The Dark Knight Rises from 2012. In the scene where the puppy runs behind a couch and a masked man follows him and appears to kick him, this scene was accomplished in two separate takes. In the first take, one trainer let the puppy go at point A, and another trainer called the puppy to him at point B. The dog ran from point A to point B, which was behind the couch. Then they cut and took the puppy out of the room. After the puppy was taken out of the room, they filmed the actor acting like he kicked the puppy behind the couch. The puppy was never actually there. In an homage to Keanu Reeves' history of saying whoa in films, 
Many of this film's characters say, oh, in a similar way whenever John Wick's name is mentioned. However, the directors deliberately avoided having Keanu's character saying it. So a little IMDb nugget here. During the safe house scene, the character's username displayed in the top right is Neo. This is a reference to Keanu Reeves' character in the Matrix trilogy. Wow. Yeah, definitely. So info and ratings, runtime of 101 minutes, a budget of 20 to 30 million, opening weekend 14.4 million, worldwide gross 86.1 million, IMDb rating 7.4, Rotten Tomato critic score 86%, Rotten Tomato audience score 81%, personal rating 5 out of 5 stars, still love this one, it's still fucking great, I really love it. I don't know about the sequels. I can't vouch for those. I've only seen the the second movie and that's it. I And it was okay. It wasn't as good as the first one, obviously. But all right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed my episode today. It was fun for me to record as always. And obviously, if you have any suggestions or requests or anything like that, just float them my way and I'll consider entertaining them. All right. I hope you guys have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.